Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. We're picking up this evening on page 85, if you're following along in the text, with paragraph number 55. And we're on step four on obedience. And uh, he's really worked hard, I think, to define obedience for us in the, the first pages. And now he's breaking it down into smaller little uh, sayings about living the obedient life. And this touches on many different aspects of the spiritual life as a whole, how obedience is tied to various virtues, outside to prayer, things such as that. And then he'll get back again uh, to illustrative stories from various monks' life about obedience and how it manifested themselves either in their role of spiritual elder or under a spiritual elder. So again, we're on page 85 with paragraph 55. I once asked one of the most experienced fathers and pressed him to tell me how humility is obtained by obedience. He said, the obedient man who has discernment even if he raises the dead and receives the gift of tears and freedom from conflict, will still think that it is the prayer of his spiritual father that has done it. And he remains, and he remains foreign and alien to vain presumption. For how could he possibly pride himself on what is done, as he himself admits, by the help of his father and not by his own effort? And so we find this again and again within the writings of the fathers. Uh, and we've talked a great deal about the importance of that relationship between uh, a spiritual elder and his spiritual child. And that it, it wasn't simply a matter of direction, that there was a relationship of love, uh, but also of responsibility, that the spiritual elder would take upon himself uh, the spiritual well-being of the one in his charge. Uh, not only in terms of the direction that was given, but also praying uh, for the individual, taking sacrifices upon himself, that knowing that he would have to give an account uh, for his, his, his spiritual child. And so uh, we see this uh, going in the other direction in this statement that uh, one who had obtained great virtue and uh, is likely to say that it is all through the intercession of one's spiritual father, never uh, taking for oneself any uh, praise or, uh, you know, never falling into a kind of presumption or conceit when it comes to virtue, but rather attributing it all to the intercession of one's elder. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes there's such a disconnect that we experience in relationships, but even in terms of our relationships with spiritual elders, confessors, that we perhaps don't have this sense of things and our dependence upon not only our spiritual elder, but one another, the kind of radical solidarity that exists between us as Christian men and women, that we don't live in isolation and uh, in our struggle for virtue and our struggle against the vices that we're part of the body of Christ and we seek to elevate it through living a life of virtue and we seek the, the help of others when we ourselves are floundering. And so, you know, no Christian uh, walks the, the, their narrow path alone. 
And if he or she does, that this is a recipe for disaster. What we'll find John getting into, in fact, is talking about the dangers of living the uh, anchoritic life, that, uh, that obedience can always be lived in its fullness in community of one form or another, whether it's in a larger community or a skeet where a few monks would be under a particular elder. But to live a life of a solitary, holds within a great danger, not only to demonic attack, but if one falls or breaks one's vows, that uh, there might not be somebody there to pick them up or pull them out of despair or despondency. So to attribute all things to the prayers of one's elder. Paragraph 56. But the practice of the above virtues is unknown to solitary, the solitary, for his rigors have brought him conceit and suggest to him that his achievements are due to his own effort. And so it's not as though John was opposed to the solitary life. Certainly it's always been a, a part of the monastic tradition, but I think he came to become astutely aware of the dangers of it, especially for a person to enter, enter into it by one's own will, or to enter into it prematurely without having, as it were, learned the ABCs of the spiritual life, but also the monastic life within the common life of the synobium and living under obedience to an elder or, or an abbot uh, for many years. And, uh, and so we'll find this theme come back to us again and again. He sort of uh, clarifies this a little bit in 57. He who lives in obedience has eluded two snares and remains eternally an obedient servant to Christ. So disobedience, as we see in the footnote, disobedience and conceit. So, you know, to, to live in community is always to live under obedience, but uh, it also is to realize that virtue is not gained simply by one's efforts. We are formed and shaped in the communities in which we, we live. Uh, that it's often there that patience as well as obedience, humility, charity, uh, all these things are, are perfected through our interactions with others. Any comments or thoughts so far on what John has had to say here? Okay. There was a question in the uh, chat section about what the fathers call pray lest, uh, which is kind of spiritual delusion. And uh, this would be the particular danger of someone who would attribute his virtues to himself or fall into this kind of conceit, uh, or someone who would be the, as it were, the victims of the demon's attacks because they, they live the solitary life prematurely. And so kind of self-deception and uh, certainly any one of us can experience that. And so even living in the world, uh, we, we might uh, live the spiritual life, focus more upon ourselves and uh, holding on to our own judgments and opinions rather than seeking the counsel of others. So we'll pray less will come up many times, you know, certainly throughout John's work. So we'll come across it again, but it's a, it's a good thought and question and certainly a good one to bring up here. 58, the devil battles with those in obedience, sometimes to defile them by bodily pollutions and make them hard-hearted, 
and sometimes to make them more agitated than usual. At other times, he makes them dry and barren, sluggish in prayer, drowsy and benighted, in order to tear them away from their struggle by making them think that they have gained nothing by their obedience, but are only backsliding. For he who does not allow them time to reflect that often the providential withdrawal of our imagined goods or blessings leads us to the deepest humility. And so the devil, and John is very good about this, you know, the devil is always at work to agitate in one way or another, to pull one away from this clarity of focus upon Christ in the pursuit of virtue, uh, for vigilance and prayer, and the fostering of the virtue of humility. And so God will often uh, allow an individual to experience their own poverty. And John lists a few of them here. Know, bodily pollutions, be feeling hard-hearted, being dry or barren, in order that he might teach them humility. But the devil is equally at work in trying to pull them into despair over this, rather than seeing it as something where God is deepening and purifying their virtue, as uh, rather uh, that obedience is something that has little or no worth to them. And so begins to tempt them to, to leave the community or change their state in life. And this again will come up many times in the sayings that are ahead of us here, to change the externals of one's life uh, because of the, the challenge of living in obedience. And obedience isn't simply uh, to a particular person, you know, it's to the, the reality, the state, the circumstances of one's day-to-day -day life, that we will often seek to remove ourselves from things that aren't pleasing to us or that seem to, are, to be overly challenging or that potentially present us with failure of one kind or another, that we think that we aren't going to be brought to a happy end in whatever that we're pursuing. And so immediately our thoughts begin to turn, okay, I'll move to something different. And in the process, the, the evil one works subtly enough to draw our focus away from God and focusing on the particular virtues that God desires us to, to learn and to embrace. And it, it can be ever so subtle. You know, I think we often think of the devil's attacks from movies that sort of sensationalize things when the battle is really psychological. And it rests most often with the thoughts that come to our minds. And uh, I think these thoughts then can uh, stir up the emotions and the emotions then can stir up and bring life to passions perhaps put down many years ago. And, uh, and it can only, it can at times only take an instant for that to happen where we, we lose that watchfulness of heart and allow ourselves and our emotions to be pulled in a particular direction. Whenever I bring up emotions, I think I have to be careful about that because I don't want, you know, there is this affective side of who we are as human beings. And emotions can be a very important part of our discernment. Uh, you know, often we will experience anger, for example, uh, and, uh, uh, but the fathers tell us that all of this has to be touched and shaped by the grace of God. And we have to make sure that where that anger is being directed, 
uh, is uh, appropriate, that uh, we, our anger should be directed at temptation or at the sin itself and anything that would pull us away from the will of God. And yet so often these emotions are stirred uh, in a way that they simply pull us into ourselves or make us redirect our attention towards others. Any thoughts on these first couple of sayings before we move on? So number 59, some have often repelled that deceiver by patience. But while he's still speaking, another angel stands by us and after a little while tries to hoodwink us in another way. I've seen some living in obedience who through their father's direction became filled with compunction, meek, temperate, zealous, free from inner conflicts and fervent. But demons came to them and sowed in them the thought that they now had the qualifications for the solitary life and that in stillness, they would attain to freedom from passion as the final prize. Thus deceived, they left the harbor and put out to sea. But when a storm came down upon them, they were pitifully exposed to danger from this foul and briny ocean through being unprovided with pilots, so unprovided with guides. So again, prematurely drawn into the, the solitary life. Uh, with the illusion of thinking that the solitary life is going to free them from the struggle with the passions. And um, I often, and we've often talked about St. Charbel in our group, sort of more of a modern elder, a Maronite, uh, Lebanese, and uh, known certainly for the depth of his prayer and wisdom, and as well as the many miracles and healings that have come through his intercession. Uh, but he was at one point made the hermit of his monastery after many years of living a life of great perfection. And I remember in the movie done about him that the abbot says something very interesting as, he's, as he uh, tells the community that, uh, that Charbel is going to be taking this uh, place as hermit. The past hermit had passed away. Uh, that note that they should not see it as a prize, that this was not an award uh, given to Charbel, that what he was entering into was a greater field of battle, you know, of being immersed in that battle with the demons in that deep silence and solitude of the hermitage. And so he is sent there because of his obedience and having been formed so deeply by it with, uh, and have, have had humility uh, grow out of that practice of obedience as well, so that he would never trust in himself or his own judgments while engaged in that battle. That it is for this reason then that the abbot could entrust him to the solitary life for the sake of the community and for the church. And uh, so often, you will hear it in stories, and as the writings of the, the lives of the fathers are replete with stories of, of monks falling into great air and even death itself uh, because of being deluded by the, the demon's temptations. Any thoughts on this paragraph? 
obedience is a challenging one uh, because I, I think there is this kind of sp spirit of disobedience within us that often seen, I think, mostly in clinging to our own judgments, our opinions about things. Uh, what we'll find come up quite often is the bearing of insult and mockery from others and how one responds to that. And I think we only have to imagine that for ourselves, you know, that when somebody says something sharp to us, immediately our defenses go up and we move away from this kind of humble spirit of obedience to wanting to protect ourselves and then lash out at another. Eric, did you have a question or a comment? Yes. Um, so if, if, if it sounds like things were extremely difficult even for uh, monks in, to um, live the spiritual life and avoid uh, spiritual deception and, and, and so forth. What hope is there for us lay people <laughs> if it was so difficult for, for, uh, for monks to, uh, to survive all of the attacks of the, the demons, so to speak? Well, as with the monks, ultimately our hope is found in one place and that's in Christ. And so it's to keep our gaze ever fixed upon him uh, in the sacramental life, uh, especially in the Eucharist confession, uh, in the scriptures, in uh, reading the fathers, of taking them as our, our spiritual elders and guides, of not uh, participating and entering into the things of this world. And so moving to simplicity of life, where uh, we are trying to maintain this unceasing remembrance of God that, you know, in the end, I think whether monk or layperson, we all enter into the same, same battle and we struggle with the demons and we struggle with our own thoughts that come upon us constantly. And so the vigilance that we hear them speak about is the vigilance that we are to foster within our own life. And, uh, you know, they were able to set aside in one movement so many of the things that afflict us uh, but they had to deal with other demons then in, in the process and other trials, you know, of the ascetic life itself. Uh, but this same kind of vigilance we have to foster in our day-to-day -day life. And in our generation, it's very difficult. We have to create a culture where if, you know, we're a part of a family, you know, that we create a culture within the home that fosters this focus upon Christ, depth of prayer, you know, being close to the church uh, and, and the community of the church as a whole, uh, but fosters a, a love of Christ, a love of the fathers right from, from the beginning. And if we've been outside of this, you know, I think uh, immersing ourselves again in the wisdom of the fathers, taking them as our elders, uh, you know, that there is a radical solidarity between ourselves and them. You know, that in Christ, they are as close to us as if we were talking to them in person. And I think sometimes when we enter into the, the writings of the fathers and enter into these relationships with the saints, they become incredibly powerful spiritual fathers to us. And it's allowing ourselves to enter into that relationship, not 
in a perfunctory kind of way, or but really as having this as the focal point uh, of our life, that our relationship with Christ, with the, the saints, with the angels, and the, you know the primary way that we do that is through the the liturgy. You know that this is first and foremost is the way that we encounter. Uh, you know, that we enter into the divine liturgy, we enter into this divine life. And uh, we have to live from liturgy to liturgy, Eucharist to Eucharist. And all of our focus has to be on embracing the grace that God gives us, and you know, letting it bear fruit in our day, day to day life. And uh, St. Philip Neri, you know, I often bring him up because I know, know him well. But, you know, at one point he said, heaven is not made for cowards. And Philip was not a harsh individual, you know, a gentle heart, a loving heart. Uh, but he knew that their, the ascetic life and this struggle with the passions and the demons was no small thing. And that we had to be willing to enter into this spiritual battle. And that whoever thinks entrance into the kingdom or the struggle against sin uh, is, is something that does not uh, mean, you know, sweating blood is fooling oneself, has fallen into, uh, fallen into a kind of prey lest. And I think we've become very adept at creating these illusions for ourselves about how to live within the world and uh, become accepting of so much that exists within it. Whereas we should be uh, forming our consciences in as deep a way as we possibly can uh, to sensitize our consciences in order that we might know with God, think with God, that we put on the mind of Christ, that we're able to discern the, the things that are around us uh, the, the nature of our thoughts, the approach of the demons, the temptations that come to us, the things that we uh, should avoid or the things that we can embrace. And, uh, you know, I, I see this movement within the life of the church. Now, I think there at times can be this negative vision of what's going on in the church because we've given a lot of people reason to see the church in that way. And perhaps we often slide into this way of thinking about it, because we've seen, you know, all the harm done in more recent years, the conflict that exists within the church, the divisions that exist, uh, often the way that liturgy is celebrated, you know, so much of our focus is upon arguments that surround those things. But when we look deeper, I think there is this great hunger that at least I find and see in so many people for what Christ alone can offer. And it might not be seen readily by many in the world. A lot, a lot of it is the hidden life, what's going on within the minds and the hearts of, of those who have faith. And in the midst of all the evil and the sin that we see in the world, uh, God's grace abounds. And it's, I see it bearing fruit in all these different ways in, in people's lives, where they are becoming more and more immersed in the life of prayer and not in any small way, at times in these very disciplined ways, you know, whether it's hours, you know, before the Blessed Sacrament or, you know, a constant 
uh, praying of the Jesus prayer throughout the day, or an immersion in the study of the fathers, seeking to immerse themselves in the wisdom of the spiritual tradition, uh, and as, as well as uh, a deepening of their love of, of liturgy and of turning to the of confession for the healing and the strength that they need. And uh, these are the things I think, you know, the evil one can draw our attention away from that. Uh, Deacon Ed was speaking of the experience in Romania and what's going on there with this renewal of the faith and how simple the focus is there. You know, what, what has been emphasized, the liturgical life, the life of prayer, and what was the, there was a third element that you mentioned there, Deacon? The philocolic renewal. That's right. So a uh, renewal of the, the spirituality of the fathers, uh, of being immersed, of going back to the, the sources of the spiritual tradition and doing what, what we are seeking to do here within these groups. And uh, Father Miron, who is often at this group, he's a priest in Ohio, Barberton, Ohio, uh, does the same thing that we do in this group, you know, that he takes his people to the fathers and immerses them in them uh, and works with them over the course of time, you know, both uh, as individuals, but also as a group. And, uh, you know, St. Philip Neri once again said, you know, if I have 10 truly detached men, I could convert the world. And so I think this kind of renewal within the life of the church is going to begin in such ways, you know, with this, you know, this small seed of faith that begins to sort of uh, take root in people's minds and hearts, their immersion in the things that are at the center and the heart of our faith life, that God will make that bear fruit and bring about uh, saints for our church. And those saints can be hidden, you know, in the midst of day-to-day -day life, but nonetheless transforming the people that they're around or their families on a day-to-day -day basis. So we have to be willing, you know, to enter into this and embrace this spirit of repentance, this constant turning of the self toward God, that the renewal of the church begins with us and makes it way, its way in and through our hearts and through our conversion. And that's what we are to be attentive to and to be confident that God can work miracles in and through that. You know, in the gospel this past weekend, you know, if you had the faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains, he tells the disciples. And, uh, you know, they, even though they had traveled with them, you know, they tried in this independent way to perform a miracle. And they failed, and they even kept it from the Lord, and uh, until you know he himself was beseeched by the Father to heal his young boy who was, you know, throwing himself into water and the flame, and Jesus rebukes them for a lack of faith, and uh, that that what they had to do in order to give rise to that uh, seed of faith is pray and fast. Such things only emerge through prayer and fasting. Such faith emerges only through that. And in Mark's gospel, it says, such things are only overcome through much prayer and fasting. The same story in Mark's gospel. So this struggle with the demons, 
you know, the struggle with evil or our own passions only comes through giving ourselves over to God in mind and body, prayer and fasting. So our whole being. So if all of us here, even within this group, could focus upon that, uh, it, would, it would bear great fruit. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments? Okay. So, number 60. This sea is bound to be stirred up and aroused and enraged as to cast out of it again onto the dry land, the wood and hay and all the corruption that was brought down into it by the rivers of passions. Let us watch nature and we shall find that after a storm at sea, there comes a deep calm. So there's a need for great constancy within the spiritual battle that inevitably John is telling us that we are going to be tossed about upon a, the sea of passions, of thoughts, of temptations, and that at times it's going to seem utterly chaotic that, uh, and we might feel that we're making, we're moving backwards, or our heart is becoming hardened, or that there is no fruit from the depth of our prayer or our struggle. Uh, but what we find consistently in the fathers all the way through the modern elders is this counsel that consolation will always follow desolation and that calm will always follow after the storm if we persevere, if we persevere through it. Endurance, the Lord tells us, is an important virtue. Make sure that you allow it to carry you all the way. Through, through to the other side. Churchill has that wonderful little quote, if you're going through hell, keep going until you come out the other side. And the spiritual life, quite frankly, can be like that. There can be times where we feel like we're going through hell, that we're besieged by our passions and that our passions have a grip on us. We can feel ourselves overcome with anger and rage and fighting with it at every moment or it can be more sins of the flesh, whatever it might be. And that can go on for long periods of time. And to make sure that we don't fall into desolation or despondency, we have to have a kind of an endurance that is rooted in hope in Christ and hope in his promises and hope in the power of his grace that these things will carry us through. We've talked about this before, you know, of, of fighting that good fight, even when we feel that we are on our back and that the evil one, the enemy is about to strike that final blow, that what allows us to maintain hope in the battle, even when we are on our back, is our mindfulness of who it is that's with us on the battlefield. That Christ is always present, that we are not, we never struggle in isolation, but we're also surrounded by all the angels and saints, uh, in particular our guardian angel. And so the way that we wage the spiritual battle should not be filled with a kind of pride or conceit, but a, a faith then that gives us courage to enter into that spiritual battle, that we are given a strength that comes from above and that is greater than that which attacks us. 
And so passions are typically overcome when we let go, usually by being humbled in the battle over time, we let go of striving to overcome them by our own will and being driven more by a sense of self-esteem. And we realize our poverty and our weakness outside of the grace of God and that begin to cling to that in and through our prayer life and through the sacraments. It's in that focus upon him and trust in his grace that the, the battle is won. It's not as though that there isn't a human response to that. We have to take hold of that grace as fully as we can. But again, not as if it arises from ourselves, but that it is given to us as gift. Any further thoughts? There's a, Lou had a direct uh, message here. Do you want me to address it? Obedience is very hard right now with regard to a hierarchy that does not even appear to be Catholic anymore. What did the father say about disobedience when our superiors are evil? Well, you know, I think the fathers tell us to keep our focus upon, again, ourselves, that even what we see clearly with our own eyes is not necessarily everything. It is God alone who sees all ends and certainly sees what is in the mind and the heart of individuals, whether they be members of the hierarchy or any other Christian. Uh, but, you know, we've heard within the Evercatinos that, you know, that we, we don't necessarily subject ourselves to the judgment or open our consciences uh, to anyone, that we, we really want to do that with those who have the gift of discernment, who've lived the life of obedience, and who have, throughout the course of their life, uh, struggled with the passions and have grown in virtue. And so when we see evil within the church and we see sin within the church, it's always good to go back to Paul. I've, again, I've mentioned this. Uh, I have to come up with some new stories. I'm sorry. But uh, when 9-11 happened, the mass that we had the day afterwards, the chapel was packed. And I remember the first reading was from St. Paul. And it was exactly about this, that what do we do when we see evil within the world? And his response was that we immediately turn to supplication, constant prayer, and repentance. That our movement when we see evil is not as one who's disconnected from it. That we acknowledge that there is this kind of radical solidarity that exists between ourselves and other members of the church. And so if there's evil in the church, it's not somehow, we're not somehow disconnected from that. There's, we can't be condescending or so conceited that we think that we do not participate in it on some level. And so whenever we see it, our first response is to be, to enter into greater repentance, conversion of life, fasting, prayer, to give ourselves over more radically to Christ. This is how the church is healed and lifted up. I think there's this always this danger that we fall into a kind of bitterness and it becomes the lens through which we view the church rather than loving her and loving the members of the church and looking at the suffering that exists because of sin or the evil that has taken hold of individuals as something 
that we carry, are called to carry the weight of and struggle with for others, we often disconnect ourselves from it and, uh, and then become the, the critic, the judge. And I think this is what has angered people so much about the, you know, the priest's you know, abuse scandal, that there was this kind of disconnect emotionally from what was going on throughout generations of, of a kind of systemic abuse that was taking place in Hidden. And, uh, and you know, conscience is not being formed enough, not only to do something about that, but to engage in a greater kind of repentance in order to elevate and strengthen the church. And uh, if any of you have seen the movie Calvary, it's about a priest in Ireland uh, who faces this in modern times where someone comes into the confessional and says, you know, Father, you know, I was abused by a priest when I was younger. And the priest asks him, you know, well, have you gone to the authorities? And he says, well, the, the priest has already died, you know, and so what, what, what's it matter now? And so he tells the priest he's going, in a week's time, he's going to kill him. You know, what good is there in killing a bad priest? I'm going to kill a good priest. And so we see the priest struggle with this throughout this you know, entire week in, in, in the movie. And one of the striking parts of the movie is when they finally meet, when he finally sees the individual, and I won't tell you how the movie ends, but uh, when he, the two meet, one of the questions, the, the priest's dog was killed, and he thinks that this, this man had killed him. And the, the guy said, no, no, he didn't. He, but he asked him, did you cry when you weep when your dog was killed? And the priest said, of course I, I did. And then he asked him, did you weep whenever you heard that your fellow priest molested children and immediately he begins you know he becomes discombobulated and he begins to say well you know I sort of disconnected myself from it you know on some level and uh, I think we do that on multiple levels not only in being enraged about what is going on in the world within the church but becoming disconnected spiritually from what our response should be. Our response should be Christ-like, that there should be no evil, no sin that leaves us unaffected or uh, that leaves us uh, anything but afflicted in the way that, that Christ is on the cross, that we should experience it in that same way. And that we seek through the penitential life and the life of prayer to uh, and the sufferings that we endure, the crosses that we carry to unite ourselves to the redemptive work of Christ himself. And I think this is what moving back to the fathers allows us to do, see with a kind of clarity. Because right now, I think, you know, everybody's the critic, everybody's the critic and the judge. And yet we have no clarity about what is going on within our own hearts. You know, it's only purity of heart that allows us to see what is going on within ourselves, allows us to discern the truth 
uh, about sin and evil and be able to address it in our life. And if we aren't engaged in the spiritual battle, then we might be thinking that we're taking the, the moral and spiritual high ground, but we, in reality, are only uh, weakening the church or we're hypocrites. You know, we, we weaken the church on this profound level. Anthony, being one who thinks a lot, thinking and ruminating too much is not healthy. Prayer is where goodness and healing is. At the very least, it's an emotional outlet to get rid of the thoughts. But devil's fog machine blinds us to its availability. My parish priest said something in a homily like, we often make our own crosses and they are too heavy. The cross God makes for us is better and easier for us. Yeah, Philip Neri said something similar. We are most often the carpenter of our own crosses. And that's true. I mean, we, by our uh, negligence or laziness in the spiritual life, or giving ourselves over to our passions, we, we bring a heavier cross to ourselves than, than Christ ever would place upon our, our shoulders. And uh, because the yoke that he places upon us is easy, and his burden is light. And because any cross that he gives us is perfectly fit to us. And the grace that he gives us to carry it is perfectly fit for it as well. And I think the, the crosses that we, we build for ourselves uh, and in and through our turning away from God and turning towards sin are far worse. And you know, this is one of the things you know, John Paul is reported to have said that uh, sin is its own punishment that, you know, that it brings greater harm to us than it does the pleasure we think it brings us. And uh, I think if we looked at others in that way, you know, saw the weight and the burden that they carry, as well as seeing our, our, our own sins in that way, would be much better off spiritually. So thinking a lot, ruminating, as you said, is a big problem. Uh, because it keeps us focused upon, and this is what the evil one seeks to do, focused even upon uh, the things that are spiritual in our life in such a way that it keeps our attention off of God. And so if he could keep our focus on a particular sin or, that we're struggling with and make us ruminate on it, he keeps us from praying. And uh, I read, I think it was from, I don't know if it was from St. Sophrony, you know, he says the, the de, or maybe it was Ignatius Bryonkinov saying that the, the, the devils pray with us, you know, they en get us to engage in the spiritual life and prayer in a certain way that pulls us away from the thing that God would want us to be attentive to. And so the person who's asked to act in obedience at that mind, his mind, his thoughts will be filled, I need to go to pray, or I want to go to pray, or engage in this devotion, rather than fulfill the obedience that has been asked of me. And so we, we really need to keep our focus constantly upon Christ, no matter how far we've progressed in the spiritual life. 
uh, Marco writes at Anthony. I think Dostoevsky put it best in the notes on the under, underground when the narrator says to think too much is a disease. I found that to be very much the case in my own life. Amen. Uh, that's true. You know, it's we can sicken ourselves, you know, with our anxious thoughts, our rumination uh, about things uh, that we really drive ourselves to distraction and agitation. Okay. Why don't we move on to paragraph 61. He who is sometimes obedient to his father and sometimes disobedient is like a person who sometimes puts lotion in his eyes and sometimes quicklime. For it is said, when one builds, another pulls down. What profit have they had but the labor? And so if there is this kind of inconstancy within the spiritual life, where we are sometimes will apply the balm that God has given to us through the sacramental life, through the spiritual tradition, uh, but yet at other times we are, as the image puts it here, putting quicklime in our eyes. So we're blinding ourselves. Uh, so if we have this inconstancy, it, uh, un, you know, it uh, undermines all of our, our labor. And so having a constancy in our, our ascetical life and our focus upon Christ is, is what's important. You know, it's not necessarily taking upon ourselves heroic penances, but it is keeping our focus upon God constantly, that we are seeking his grace and uh, living in him in every way that we possibly can. And when we become negligent of that relationship, or when we grow lazy in the things that draw us into it, is when we find ourselves losing uh, the fruit of the labors that we've embraced, perhaps for years. Number 62, do not be deceived, son and obedient servant of the Lord, by the spirit of conceit, so that you, may, you confess your own sins to your master as if they were another person's. You cannot escape shame except by shame. It is often the habit of the demon to persuade us either not to confess or to do so as if we were confessing another person's sins or to lay the blame for our sin on others. Lay bare, lay bare your wound to the physician and without being ashamed say, it is my wound. Father, it is my plague caused by my own negligence and not by anything else. No one is to blame for this. No man, no spirit, no body, nothing but my own carelessness. This is really an incredible, uh, provocative and challenging paragraph. Because I think in the spiritual life, you know, it is easy. We are inevitably going to come up against those who do things, say things, treat us in a certain way that, uh, that gives rise then to our own passions of anger. And, uh, and then because of, of that, uh, we will turn and shift the blame onto them and uh, often do exactly what John tells us here. We will seek to communicate even 
in, in the context of confession, uh, our sins within a particular context that preserves, seeks to preserve our self-esteem by shifting even as, as in the smallest possible way, blame off of ourself onto another. And John says, we, we have to, as it were, cut that out uh, as completely as we can. And with, with the, the, you know, this very, these very strong words would, would be worthy of memorizing. It is my wound, Father. It is my plague. Caused my, by my own negligence, not by anything else. No one is to blame for this. No man, no spirit, no body. Nothing but my own carelessness. Later on in this step, he'll talk about going to confession, you know, allowing this shame to drive out shame by being willing even to prostrate ourselves before the confessor as uh, a criminal would prostrate himself before a judge, you know, of acknowledging in the most profound way our, our guilt for what has been committed, that it can only be attributed to our carelessness, regardless of what another has done. We are still responsible for what is going on within our own hearts and how we respond to it. It's like a bucket of cold water, isn't it? But the, again, you know, if we think about the, the, the bitterness that we struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, it always seems reasonable to us. And because on some level it is, this person said this to me or did this to me or took this tone with me or failed, you know, failed me in one way or another again for the hundredth time. And so it seems eminently reasonable to us then to give ourselves over to that anger and bitterness. And, you know, a number of times we talked here about the Christ use of the word excuse within the gospel and it coming from the root ex causa to free oneself from the charge. And we do this on a day-to-day -day basis when we we mimic what John is describing here. We free ourselves from the charge of engaging in the spiritual battle and taking responsibility for our own passions. We cannot lay them upon another individual. Any thoughts about that? Everybody always gets incredibly quiet whenever we get into subjects like this. But, you know, these are some of the most important insights, I think, for the spiritual life. And not just insights. I think you know, something that we have to strive to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis with this kind of radical honesty with ourselves, that we are ever so capable of doing this and not having it, you know, stir up our conscience at all. You know, that, that we are responsible on this level. Marco, Father, is the kind of confession that the Father's mentioned different than the sacrament of penance as we understand it now in the West? Was this confession that took place with the elder disciple relationship? 
The fathers tell us to reveal our inner thoughts, our inner wounds in confession, yet we are brought up in the West with the just st state the kind and number approach to confession, right? Many times we don't give the priest much context and we receive no advice either about our vices, even when the same priest hears our confessions on a regular basis. Absolutely, good thought. And you will find in John his reference to both and his stressing the importance of not being hesitant to reveal uh, those sins to our brother or our elder. Uh, and not only within the context of the sacrament of confession, that it is always the revelation of the thoughts of bringing them to light that is healing. And so the, the grace, the strength that we receive in this ascetical practice is not limited to the sacramental experience of it. We would say again that you know, it offers us the, the preeminent experience of God's grace, that these are the, the means that God has given us uh, to experience his healing, but not the only. It's not the only way that God's grace manifests itself within our lives. And so our willingness to bring our struggles, our thoughts to the light, especially with the spiritual elder, brings a deep kind of healing, which is far greater then, as you said, simply going in and listing things and not really laying them out before an elder with this sense of our responsibility for them, nor being given the kind of counsel that is a healing balm of how to deal with the particular passion at hand. And so the way that we examine our consciences on a daily basis and the way that we practice, I think, with the Father's described for us here uh, really, I think, has to make us think, you know, both as priests and as, as laity about how the practice of confession is entered into, that how, how is a priest to prepare himself for that role and how must he make himself accessible in order that it does not become this kind of uh, uh, what do you call it, where, you know, everybody's just filing through line and getting what they, they need. You know, it's not just this uh, factory line kind of experience that I think priests have to be accessible to be within the confessional, uh, to be able to listen on the level that we hear John describe here, but also to be able to offer the, the wisdom and the counsel of, of the spiritual tradition that is going to be truly beneficial and healing to those coming to the sacrament so that they might embrace that grace that is offered to them and, 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 and uh, act upon it as fully as they can uh, in order not to, to commit the sin again. You know, part of that firm resolution then uh, is, is not to commit it again, but to take hold of the grace of the sacrament and embrace uh, the counsel that is, is given uh, and to embrace it fully. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, again and again, I, I hear that, you know, that priests, and I know that they are often, uh, you know, overcome with administrative duties, but there has to become you know, uh, th there has to be this kind of conscious movement 
within the priest's mind and heart, you know, both as, and it has to begin with individual priests making the decision to do it. I mean, you could have all kinds of councils meet and talk about this and documents come out about this, but eventually priests are going to still, still be confronted with the same things in their day-to-day -day life. And so they have to consciously make this decision what I'm going to prioritize along with my own prayer life is my preparation and celebration of the, for, of the holy mysteries. And so whether it's divine liturgy or hearing confession, that these are going to be the things that are the center of my life and that I give most of my time to because this is what I was ordained for. And uh, that might mean, again, radical changes for the way that the priest lives his life, too, you know, in terms of the frequency with which he goes to confession, the depth of his own prayer, how deeply he, he immerses himself within the spiritual tradition that leads him then to respond to the grace of his office in the fullest measure. Because it's not as though the church has not said these things before. And it's not like we don't have the example of saintly priest who spent 12 hours a day within the confessional. You know, how did they run a parish? You know, how did they endure 12 to 16 hours in a confessional with no air conditioning? You know, I was crying after one of the liturgy because I got a salt stain on my scufia. <laughs> from the liturgy because it was hot you know it's it's we have you know no uh courage or wherewithal in our day to enter into the spiritual life and enter into it deeply because we've lived this soft life and we coast into deeper and deeper mediocrity bridget mcginley Father, can the evil one enter the confessional and disturb either the priest or the penitent during the confession? It's a good question. You know, there's a lot of grace that certainly comes through the confessional. But again, you know, if a priest is not prepared and enters into it again in a perfunctory way, simply fulfilling a duty and is distracted, is on his iPhone or on a computer or thinking about you know, his need to get through as many confessions as he can, as quickly as he can, because he has mass or he has to be somewhere else. Uh, it can definitely affect and disturb the whole experience of the confessional itself and even lead those who are going to confession into a kind of despondency and a desire not to go back to confession again or to ha have to search desperately for a confessor that is not going to treat them rudely or uh, you know, push them out of the confessional or give them counsel where it's obvious that they were not listening at all to what was said. And so I think the evil one can definitely enter in, into that experience in the same way that he can enter into you know, the, the experience of the mass itself or, or the liturgy, you know, where a priest is not acting in accord with the mind of the church or where he becomes the center of attention or that the, the, the liturgy is being engaged without rep due reverence. You know, all of these things undermine the, the gifts that God has given to us 
And so there's an enormous responsibility. This is why we should always be praying for priests in particular, because there's an enormous responsibility that's given to them and also an account that they will have to give. For every way, every word that they say during the liturgy, the way that they say that, how they enter, how they enter into it. So the, the short answer to your question is yes. Any final thoughts? As we were at 8.30, great questions as always, but there's a lot here. And I don't want, again, I don't want to move through these little sayings too quickly. So it would be good to go back and read through them again on your own. And, uh, and we'll, we'll try to maintain, you know, uh, a very modest pace going through this until we get to some of the illustrative stories again. Okay. So we'll stop there for the night. And while we close as always with the, our father, In the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. My Lord, God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.